This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. This is episode four of our series, On the Road to Glasgow. I must admit I'm feeling rather overwhelmed by all the press briefings and webinars on COP26. I'd like to think about what's at stake. The COP president, Alok Sharma, said, this is the moment for the world to consign coal to history. There've been blackouts in India and China, blackouts in many parts of Europe. And I'm wondering how we're going to make this transition from coal, oil and gas in the rapid time that we need to do. Uh, especially as Australia and other exporting nations, fossil fuel exporters, are not making any offers to cut back on their trade. For countries in the global south, climate justice means money. Back in 2009 at the Copenhagen COP, developed countries promised to deliver $100 billion every year in climate finance to developing countries. That would have built an awful lot of wind farms and solar installations, and it would have restored mangrove forests and soil carbon. But according to our Matthias Corman, who is now Secretary General of the OECD, each year we are $20 billion short on the money promised. As Filipino climate leader Tony Lavinia from the Manila Observatory said, quote, if the developed countries are not able to deliver on the $100 billion per annum promised in 2009, there is not much to discuss, as trust will be broken. Last week, we heard about the Amazon forest, and at COP26, I think deforestation will be taken seriously for the first time. As Boris Johnson says, the focus will be on coal, cars, cash, and trees. Now for tonight's episode four. The Women and Earth Climate Alliance, WECAN, put on a six-day conference, which I attended at 2 a.m. online for a week. Tonight, I'd like to bring you some of the brilliant women climate leaders in law, trade unions, media, and youth perspectives. The moderator is Osprey Oriel Lake, who is also the impressive leader of WECAN. For law, we'll hear Jacinta Ruru in Aotearoa. And I just think as more and more opportunities that all of us can um, spend more time with Indigenous peoples, open our hearts and minds to reading Indigenous words, to understanding the Indigenous visions for the future is going to give us all so much more hope and heart for going forward and will give us the strength to reimagine a world that is possible. It is entirely possible to reimagine this world and to reimagine for all of us our relationships with one another and with everyone that sits around us. For media, Amy Goodman will tell us the story of Standing Rock and how important it is for independent media to take their spotlight to the women and Indigenous protectors, which I think 3CR does very well. For trade unions, Irene Hong Ping Shen explores how building back better means publicly owned energy. This will be taken up at COP26 and she's from Trade Unions for Energy Democracy. And lastly, for young people's perspectives, I talked to Amelia Goodridge, who is attending COP26 with Global Voices. She says it's essential to resource Indigenous groups and we must make space and a real seat at the table for youth. Now here's Jacinta Ruru. I know that I've just been entirely privileged to have been brought up in a Māori worldview here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where the lands and the waters are who we are as a people and that our health and well-being 
as, as a family is directly related to the health and well-being of the rivers and the lakes that are around us. And so we need to find ways to reconnect in a really purposeful way. Jacinta Ruru is the first Maori woman to become a law professor. She has the most persuasive voice, and when she talks about relinquishing power in favour of Indigenous management of land and water and the legal rights of nature, it sounds like an idea whose time has come. Oh, thank you, Osprey and Shannon. It's a real honour to be um, sitting here with you today. Thank you for this opportunity. And in my Indigenous language, I greet everyone who's here today. So this is the language of my ancestors here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Indigenous Māori from the tribal nations of Ngāti Ramanui and Ngāti Rokawa. So in my 10 minutes, um, I wish to make these points. If we are serious about the rights of nature, we must first see, hear and listen to Indigenous peoples to understand their connection to and aspirations for the lands, waters, forests and mountains. And in the act of seeing, hearing and listening, we must be prepared to relinquish significant power in favour of Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination for Indigenous nations to care for these lands, waters, forests and mountains. So in turning to the detail of my talk, I applaud and honour the intellectualism, the bravery and resilience of my Māori ancestors and relations then and now. And I come to this talk against a background of where the laws of this country, Aotearoa New Zealand, are beginning to see and hear our Māori environmental ancestors. For example, the law now recognises Ōraki, Mount Cook, which is the tallest mountain in this country, as the son of Ranganui, the son of our Sky Father. This is now recognised in law. The Waikato River, our longest river, and the Whanganui River, our third longest river, are now recognised as our, as our Indigenous Māori ancestors. And Te Uruwera, a huge forested landscape, is now recognised as the heart of the fish that the demigod Maui caught and fished up. This makes sense in our Māori world of seeing these lands. So against this background, I ask myself these three questions. If we see and hear as a nation, Māori environmental ancestors, what do we now do in response? And if our colonial dominated current constitutional orders are no longer fit for purpose, what better orders do we dream for? And how do we seek to make right the rules for our country to enable well-being into the future in the face of extensive climate and biodiversity intergenerational crises? So I'm pretty full on focused on these questions, as are many others, and I hope many of you will also join in and opening large parts of your hearts and minds to work through these issues too. So I think the opportunity that is afforded to us if we listen to Indigenous nations is more exciting than the platform of rights of nature. Rights to nature means little to me if nature is not first understood from an Indigenous perspective. And Shannon, you, I know you've also been making these points. I think to do otherwise is to perpetrate colonisation. So to explain and to do so, I'm focusing on law because it is a central tool to use to make change. As we all know, law hasn't been kind to Indigenous peoples. It has silenced, stolen and criminalised much of what is dear to us. Hundreds of years ago, the Europeans dreamed up, dreamed up their desire to expand the air empires across salt waters. They developed that new legal doctrine, the doctrine of discovery. It holds that Europeans can gain sovereignty of another's lands on the basis of first discovery, even if other people live there. And I think this is one of the greatest examples of the magic of law. From 1840, Māori, the indigenous peoples of this country were purposefully alienated from the care of significant natural resources. Even prominent ancestral treasures, 
such as the tallest mountain of this country, Odaki, Mount Cook, the son of the Sky Father, were not exempt from the exclusionary crown colonist take all stance. The mountain came under assumed crown ownership and management in the 19th century, along with most of the lands and waters in this country. Māori connectedness to our lands has been seriously disrupted in the last 200 years. The deliberate colonial crusade manifests an Indigenous physical, spiritual and cultural loss, but we've never forgotten and we've never gave up hope for our flourishing futures. If law is powerful and if it can make up things like the doctrine of discovery and declare huge expansive mountains as wastelands, so if law can do anything, what now do we want it to do? And I think by knowing that law is biased, we have the agency to make real our dreams in both a practical and constitutional manner. And this really excites me. But only if we can be truly brave. And we need to be brave in this climate and biodiversity crisis of our times. So my research argues that colonial countries such as New Zealand should more meaningfully connect with Indigenous peoples. And one way to do this is to reconsider the Crown's assumptions of having to own and govern public lands and waters. Legal personality or the rights to nature is a vibrant and real way to do just this. Throughout the world, governments have the opportunity to use legal personality of the environment to address centuries of legal and societal racism and bias, but only if it is used first to reconnect Indigenous peoples back in control of their lands and waters. Recognising nature as legal persons is enabling many powerful things for us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Legal personality transforms our nation's legal system by placing at the forefront of our society a Māori way of understanding all that is around us. And in the words of our then Minister of Māori Affairs, the Honourable Supita Sharples, legal personality offers us a, and I'm quoting here, a profound alternative to the human presumption of sovereignty over the natural world. So in a Western context, the American professor Christopher Stone had that vision for environmental legal personhood back in 1972. He wrote that book, Should Trees Have Standing, and answered that question by telling us that trees, oceans, animals, and the environment as a whole should be bestowed with legal rights and a legal vision to be heard in the courts. But Te Uruwera and the Whanganui River didn't become legal persons to simply protect these places. The law was already provide, providing layers of environmental protection against degradation. So, for example, Te Uruwera had been a national park. This is the highest level of environmental protection possible in our legal system. A national park must be preserved in perpetuity in a natural state. By removing Te Uruwera from that national park statement and giving it legal personality and recognising the face of the Whanganui River as, as a legal person, are solutions born from the heartache and struggle to survive from the onslaught of, onslaught of European colonisation, where the colonial atrocities of warfare, destruction and land confiscation have seeped deep, leaving our societies in disarray. The legislated solutions arose as a negotiated settlement between the Crown and Indigenous nations. I think legal personality offers us the power to displace and disrupt racism in our society and in our state laws. And Aotearoa New Zealand legal personality makes sense because it aligns with the Indigenous Māori worldview and quite helpfully neutralises the hotly contested issue of who owns publicly owned lands and waters. The experience in Aotearoa New Zealand shows us if we listen hard to Indigenous peoples, they too have ideas and solutions for all of us and how to care for place. And the idea here of legal personality or rights to nature, I believe, is one of our greatest hopes around the world to build bridges to Indigenous worldviews of the personified landscape. It's not the only answer, it's problematic. It also represents, the, it re simply represents the best that could be negotiated within a realm that won't easily engage in restitution negotiation with the recognition of Māori Indigenous sovereignty. 
To act is the most important thing. If we see environmental ancestors in law, what more do we do? And I think we have to have a serious conversations about power sharing and constitutional change that seeks to empower Indigenous leadership. We only need to look at what happens when Māori regain power in the conservation care Realm. So the new care plan for Te Uruwera, that was once that national park, but from a Māori perspective, is the heart of the great fish that Māori fished up. Te, te Kawa or Te Uruwera reads like no other national park management plan I have ever read. This new plan for caring for these forested lands and is having legal personality. So this plan deliberately sets out to disrupt the norm. It strives to manage people for the benefit of the land, rather than manage land for the benefit of people. It is a remarkable document that embraces a process of unlearning, rediscovery, and relearning to seize the truth expressed by our beliefs. The orientation of the plan is deliberatively we are resetting our human relationship and behaviour towards nature. Our disconnection, so this is the Māori tribe, the Māori nation of this area, Tuhoi writing, our disconnection from Te Uruwera has changed our humanness. We wish for its return. And as embraced in all decisiveness, we are returning to our place in nature as her child. And this plan knows that answers to biodiversity well-being lie intimately within the lands themselves, if we listen carefully. And I'll just quote this part, and then I think that might be my time up, Osprey. So just quoting from this plan, the nature speaks all the time and is understood only by the sincere observer and heedful mind and heart. Humanity has much to gain from reigniting a responsibility to Te Uruwera, for within these customs and behaviours lies the answers to our resilience, to meet a forever changing climate. Through committing to Te Uruwera values, we are innovating our instincts and adjusting our behaviour to ensure a prosperous future that is secure. And so I just end with those Indigenous words of hope, if we can give back control and power to Indigenous peoples, I think is one of our greatest opportunities moving forward. Kia ora, thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Jacinda, for this extraordinary conversation. And I just wanted to mention, because I think, Jacinda, you bring up something at the end, which is sort of hinting in a direction of like, uh, this is not just going to simply happen. There's, there's a lot of nitty gritty work that we can, we've been involved in this work for many years. And it's a lot of work. It's a, it's a confrontation of the current systems. So I don't want to leave the viewers thinking that, whoa, governments are really excited about rights of nature because it is a transfer of power away from patriarchy, colonization, <laughs> capitalism, racism. So uh, just to, to mention the struggle that's involved and the effort that everybody's put out for the victories that we've had and continuing that implementation for some years now, the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature, GARN, has been parallel to the UN climate talks during the COPs, holding very specifically at that time tribunals, rights of nature tribunals, where we have shown that there is an alternative to the market mechanisms, to the commodification and financialization of nature, that there is these indigenous worldviews and a different way of understanding solutions to the climate crisis and socio and ecological harms. And so these are, you know, often one day or two day full on sessions where we deeply engage in the indigenous harms, the environmental harms and harms to communities from all the things that we've been talking about from fracking to fossil fuel extraction to harms to water um, and how they are violations of rights of nature based on the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth, which is part of the framework for this assembly. We have a whole uh, page of frameworks that we're operating from, which Catherine can put into the chat. And the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth is one of those frameworks that we're presenting at COP to governments, as well as to financial institutions, so that we have this new jurisprudence that you two both beautifully presented about. And this year at the COP, um, uh, we're very engaged in two cases. Um, people can tune into that. We'll put that into the chat. One of the cases is going to be on the Amazon, 
because the Amazon is at such a critical tipping point. And the other case will be a climate crisis case. And to be sure, all the things that we talked about in this session will be presented there. Um, and we will be very deeply engaged um, from the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature in these tribunals to really show that rights of nature is a way forward and to stop these terrible violations of being out of harmony with Mother Earth. So welcome everyone to the Global Women's Assembly for Climate Justice, Solutions from the Front Lines and the Protection and Defense of Human Rights and Nature. This is an inclusive space across identities and the gender spectrum. My name is Osprey Oreo-Lake and I'm the Executive Director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, or WECAN. We're really excited about this upcoming panel, Media Visibility of Women's Climate Leadership. And we wanna thank all of you who are working in the media for your really critical work. It's so vital to shift the narrative and public discourse to challenge dominant systems of exploitation and oppression of women and the earth and break open more media spaces to spotlight how women, feminist and gender diverse leaders are leading struggles and solutions for climate justice. Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! often goes to the front lines of climate change. Here she talks about the water protectors at Standing Rock, standing up against an oil pipeline, and how hungry people are to hear authentic stories like this. To talk about the importance of media. And I think we have to add to this the importance of corporate free media. Because so often you have the networks that are often brought to you by the very corporations that are bringing us the problems. And it's not that they can't do a good job, but they are facing much more pressure from within to take on um, the powers that be and that power them. You know, Democracy Now! just today, uh, talking about Enbridge Line 3 and the Battle Royale that Indigenous people are waging in northern Minnesota, um, It just announcing that it's going to be moving ahead with oil flowing. I think it's tomorrow. Uh, we have been interviewing Tara Hauska, the Indigenous lawyer and activist, um, recently arrested and arrested and arrested, um, uh, as well, Winona LaDuke, uh, who's right up there at the White Earth Reservation, who has been fighting this. And I just so underscore what the other panelists have said about the importance of people framing their own story. And so often in environmental stories, we're talking about women-led movements and indigenous women-led movements. Going back to Standing Rock, we've just passed, we're in the fifth anniversary of uh, this historic gathering in 2016. We were following it from afar, um, and but then in Labor Day of that year, we raced to Standing Rock, the Labor Day weekend, uh, to bring out the voices of people on the ground. And it was there that we witnessed this atrocity. Already hundreds had been arrested. 
you know, Standing Rock begun with LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, may she rest in power, uh, who is the unofficial historian of the Standing Rock um, uh, Reservation. Uh, she opened her property to those who would resist the Dakota Access Pipeline. She thought dozens would come, set up teepees, set up tents. Well, dozens, then hundreds, then thousands of people. You had the Sacred Stone Camp. You had um, the Red Warrior Camp and so many others uh, where people gathered to take on this powerful corporation to challenge what was happening on their territory and adjacent to it. They also were defining how to talk about them. They said, don't call us protesters, call us water protectors. They were challenging that the Dakota Access Pipeline would be built, but also built into the Missouri River, the longest river in North America, that would imperil the water supply of 17 million people downstream. The weekend we went, we're following different protests. And then we went to an area that the Standing Rock called their sacred ground. A judge was going to rule on it a few days later. They wanted to post their tribal uh, flags from different communities, First Nations in Canada, Latin America. The non-Native allies came to watch and they saw bulldozers. One, two, three, four, five, six bulldozers. And they were already excavating what, what had been forbidden. And the fact is that Standing Rock historians had given over the map because a judge requested it of, to prove it was their sacred ground. He gave it to uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. And using this map, they brought their bulldozers in from afar, and they were going to make it a moot point what the judge would rule because they were excavating before. Young women, girls, women, men, boys, all stood in front of the bulldozers risking their lives. We're talking about earth crushing machines. We were just filming the team of Democracy Now! We came on the site. The bulldozers started to pull away because of this bravery. And then the security guards started unleashing dogs. That's right. You know, like from the civil rights era, dogs. And we filmed the dog with its nose and mouth dripping with blood. And they were attacking the Native Americans and they, they were being maced. They were being beaten. They were being bloodied. Finally, the guards and the bulldozers pulled away, not like uh, shock, shockingly. It was the resistance that forced them back, even though they had been hit so hard and people marched forward. We then posted this online. And within 24 hours, there were like 14 million views. It showed that people all over the world, deeply concerned about the climate emergency, we were in and are continuing to be it. Um, we came back to New York, continued to cover this. And a few days later, a judge was going to rule and they quietly announced that they were going to arrest me arrest me as a journalist. Uh, I learned of this when I was in Canada. I raced back to the United States because I thought they wouldn't let me back into uh, the United States. And we knew we had to go right back because they were simply using democracy now to send a message, I thought, especially to young journalists, do not dare to go to North Dakota or this is what could happen to you. We raced back. They dropped the charges. Then they brought more serious felony riot charges against me. We had to take this on, but we also wanted to cover the protests. We weren't the story, but because they were arresting journalists. The rest of the media came in. And as we stood broadcasting our show and I was going to turn myself in, it was too much for the local judges who had arrested so many hundreds of Native Americans. Um, it was the homepage of BBC and Al Jazeera, New York Times, even Vogue magazine. But what's interesting is when we can get the media to start focusing its spotlight on the issues that matter, the kind of reality TV where it's really reality, it changes everything. The judge then didn't dare uh, move forward with the arraignment. And it was not only that he dropped the charges against me, the Native Americans that were facing uh, jail that day had their charges dropped. 
we need a media, a grassroots, global, independent, international investigative media around the globe that is giving voice to the grassroots, because that is where the power is. A media that is a huge kitchen table that stretches across the globe that we all sit around, discuss and debate the most important issues of the day, war and peace, uh, ecocide, uh, racism, LGBTQ issues, all of these issues, most importantly, inequality, especially in a time of a pandemic. And that's the kind of media that everyone's going to tune into. And I'll just end by saying for anyone who has a story anywhere who's watching this anywhere, please send your ideas, guest suggestions to stories at democracynow.org. But it's so important that we link up with independent media because that's where we're gonna get that great depth, the great diversity of voices that are the true change makers in the world. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my head back and really laugh, really laugh. Thank you. Irene Hongping Shen is with Trade Unions for Energy Democracy. She says if energy was in public hands, the transition to renewable energy would speed up. Greetings, sisters, and everyone here today. I'm honored and excited to be with you. Thank you so much to WeCan for your continued leadership in building movements of women thinking about and taking action on behalf of Mother Earth and all living things. I work with a group called Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, also known as 2ED. We are a network of 88 unions in about 25, 26 different countries. The project was sparked by trade union discussions at the Rio Plus 20 climate meetings in 2012. Particularly trade unions from the global south were saying that the green growth model of climate solutions was unworkable. Currently, TUED does research analysis and works directly with unions around the world to help them articulate stronger union climate policies and programs. And we focus on the need for the public ownership of energy and the democratic control of the sector in order to put human and ecological needs first over profit accumulation. We see energy as something that must be returned to being a public good that is decommodified and accessible to everyone. Our work is anchored in a working class analysis, and we also collaborate with allies in the climate movement. But obviously, changing global economies is not a simple task. And the complexities are not only because of the need to transition to a cleaner energy economy, um, but also because we need to face and heal from the long and painful history of domination, dehumanization, and violence, all of which helped to create an exploitative economic system made up of private ownership and control of land, resources, and human labor. In addition, sexism, racism, genocide, and all oppressions have been tools for the imperialist expansion and profit accumulation of this patriarchal economic system. But it is possible to face and heal from the past. If we don't, we will continue with the same patterns that create the same systems that got us into this mess. The skills of women caregivers, relationship builders, nurturers have helped build thriving societies. But these skills have also been deeply exploited since the beginning of class societies. We are in a situation now that in order to address the warming of the planet, we must also address the exploitation of women's labor, the working class, and Mother Earth's resources, as they are all interconnected. The skills of care are fundamental to what's needed to creating the conditions to look at the harsh and devastating past and heal towards a different future together. These are critical features of a feminist and regenerative economy. And in parallel, the public ownership of energy is also crucial in creating the conditions to decarbonize with a plan and with a feminist agenda at its center. The current model of energy is one of private ownership and control in the same trends as our past. The energy policy today is climate policy. Two of the key components of climate policy uh, are one, 
putting a price on carbon to get corporations to change their behavior and move away from fossil fuel use, and two, encouraging investments in renewable energy and other clean technologies. Energy policy is now beholden to making profit. There is no possibility of rational planning or coordination and cooperation. Instead, decisions of decarbonization are jerked around by the need to reach a profit margin for investors. Ultimately, the public ends up paying for the private sector. Some people think that the lack of renewable energy investment is because there is a lack of government ambition. But TUID has done a deep dive into why the mechanisms of renewable energy investments are failing. I don't have time to go into all of it here, but in short, the investments in renewable energy are too risky, so no one wants to invest. But because of climate change and the need to reduce emissions, governments feel the pressure to develop renewable energy projects. And the consequence of this is that governments end up using public money to guarantee profits to meet the uh, profit margins of private investors. So again, you have the public purse paying for the private sector. Not only are these policies increasing injustice, but they are also slowing down decarbonization. Um, I'm going to give you an example about Scotland since COP26 is in Glasgow this year. There were jobs promised to uh, Scottish workers at uh, Bifab, this set of yards where they produce um, industrial have industrial production. And they were promised these jobs to build uh, wind turbine jackets about 10 miles from where these wind turbines were actually going to go up. But these jobs never materialized because it wasn't possible to generate the profits needed to meet all of the expenses for these wind projects and also meet margins for private investors. Those these jobs went elsewhere for cheaper labor and cheaper production costs. Meanwhile, um, they had to ship the final projects back to Scotland, increasing global emissions, which is completely ridiculous. Um, in addition to these loss of jobs, we don't hear about the invisible stories of the women in the communities where these economies were devastated, where there are direct impacts on the men and their job losses. We don't hear about the stories of the women's lives who were also under desperate survival conditions in the community and the home. If we did hear more about these stories of women, we would maybe be pushed to fight for a different kind of energy model. In our work, we really push for a uh, publicly owned model and democratically controlled system of energy. And what I mean by that is a government owned system that is accountable to the public, where there are processes in place for democratic participation. And we see the need for this because of the issues of scale, timeline of the crisis, and in particular, the uniqueness of the energy systems and the accompanying technologies that we understand. So the Struggle for public ownership is alive and well all around the world, Puerto Rico, France, South Africa, Mexico, Trinidad and Tobago, all at different stages, but all confronting similar patterns of neoliberal energy policy. If we were having a public ownership of energy model, there would be so many things we could do to right this situation. This includes massive programs of energy conservation with many jobs created. There could be cooperation between nations with established sharing of technology and waived intellectual property rights. You could have local projects that could be coordinated and protected and potentially uh, expanded rather than a patchwork of solutions that would always be on the brink of getting destroyed by some other money-making enterprise. All in all, the public energy framework is one that could produce putting the priorities of human ecological needs first. And with that, I see it as deeply um, aligned with a feminist agenda and one in which we could actually incorporate a feminist platform. And so I invite everybody to join this idea of fighting for public ownership of energy and democratic control. Essa rua, essa rua, ela é minha Eu refloresto e vou um dia retomar Pra todo povo, todo povo dessa terra Que o genocídio não conseguiu acabar
I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR Community Radio is right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can, you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back. Australia to the earth. Peace with earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. Amelia Goonridge will be participating in COP26. She represents Global Voices, which is going to give or is giving young Australians a chance to explain their concerns at international forums. And uh, she's especially interested in climate action. So welcome, Amelia. Tell us how you are preparing for this Glasgow meeting, which you will go to virtually, but doesn't mean that you, you won't be meeting fabulous people. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm um, participating in this program run by Global Voices, which is an organisation put together by young people. And I guess um, we're preparing in a couple of main ways. So we, we through the program, we have to write policy papers for climate policy. And in general, we have to be kind of across what key issues are, what's happening in the policy landscape, um, and in order to craft these kind of strong ideas for climate policy. So that's one kind of aspect of the program. But the other one is kind of focused around COP. Um, so we have a briefings program where we get together with the other scholars from the program and we um, talk about what COP is, what the key issues are, what our main concerns are, and we talk about how we can, I guess, engage young people in the space as well. And so engage, doing like media outreach and youth engagement is actually a really effective way of um, saying across what's going on and um, preparing and developing our ideas because we're constantly kind of trying to express ourselves. We're constantly talking to other young people with great ideas. And we're keep, kind of keep, keeping across, a, you know, abreast of what's going on in the space. So what are other, um, what's going on in climate politics in general? What are going to be the key issues that come up at COP? What are other young people saying about COP and in the lead up to COP? Yeah, so in preparing this policy paper, we're kind of thinking about the general big issues and things we'd like to see happen. But in this kind of media outreach and youth engagement space, that's kind of how we're keeping across, like, what are the live issues? What do we need to communicate? And, yeah, how are we going to communicate those things? Have you had any government briefings? We, we took part in a stakeholder um, session last week. Um, so a few of us attended a roundtable with DFAD, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Um, so basically we sat down with DFAT and 
with a bunch of other youth stakeholders. So there were people from various universities or and other organizations like the Mock COP26. So it's kind of like a model UN thing. There was this fabulous young 15 year old who had just gotten back from Milan, um, the, the big youth for climate conference there. And also people from the Australian Youth for International Climate Engagement Network. It's called AFIS. It's kind of connected to DFAT. And basically they asked us what our main priorities for COP were. So we talked about those and they also asked us how we thought youth could engage better and so we presented some kind of ideas on how um, DFAT could create more channels for young people to get involved. I know a lot of older people, you know, climate activists and campaigners who've been doing this for years, are pinning their hopes on young people like Greta Thunberg. I see her at these conferences like Davos and people are just, oh, they're melting, but they don't change their policies in terms of what she says and what the regular youth climate strikers are saying. And I think young people must be a bit sick of being spoken about and put on a pedestal. And I wonder, do we need a different engagement with youth? Do these big decision makers need a different sort of respect for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think there need to be channels for young people to express themselves rather than for people to kind of aggregate what they think we're saying and, you know, and then talk about us. Um, I think that should be a youth delegation in person at uh, COP26 where I think it's a very convenient narrative that young people don't care and don't want to get involved. But actually seeing young people express themselves, put forward like, put forward ideas and be angry but organized is really powerful um Mm -hmm. it shows you that you know people do care and that it's effective and that there are loads of other people who can help you and support you you know it inspires solidarity so beyond the fact that i think we have good ideas that are worth being expressed i think it's just really powerful to show other young people that doing something is not pointless Well, I'm pretty angry about even just what I heard on the radio this morning about um, Keith Mm. was interviewed and and according to him, we're going to be exporting coal and gas right into the dim future. Yeah. Coal exports will eventually decline, as you've reaffirmed today. That's going to happen regardless of any climate commitments made by the government. As the PM keeps telling us, it's countries like South Korea and Japan who will decide the future of the Australian coal industry, not any nationally determined contributions we sign up to in Glasgow, isn't it? Have you accepted that? Well, we are just 4% of the world's thermal coal production, uh, but we're an important 4%. Uh, We are a very, very high-quality product. Uh, We'll remain in the market whilst there's demand. Uh, And as I've said, we expect that demand to drop off a peak at 2030 by about 20% by 2050. And Australia will look to continue to fill that demand because it's important for our economy, it's important for jobs in regional Australia. What makes you angry about the climate position that our government will be taking to Glasgow? Mm. I mean, personally, I find it frustrating that we're talking about 2050. Uh, personally, I think that's way too far down the line. <laughs> I go, yeah, this is just my own my own personal views. Um, I think we need to be taking quite serious action right now. Um, and I think 2050 is just another way of avoiding what we're eventually going to have to avoid. And saying 2050 means, oh, yeah, we'll do it later. We'll get around to it later. So I think you know, because it is happening now. It's not going to happen in 2050. Climate change is happening now. It's affecting people now. You know, governments in um, in the Pacific are having to make really difficult decisions right now. Um, people across, across the world are dealing with disaster. And even people here in Australia, you know, most of my friends in their early 20s or sometimes even their late teens talk about never wanting to have children, you know, because how could you bring a child into a world that is ending? So... Yeah, I think that's what makes me the most frustrated as if, yeah, it's a problem that isn't already happening. In this show, I've, um, tonight I've featured a lot of Indigenous voices around the world. And I think even in Australia, we are becoming a bit more receptive to what our Aboriginal climate leaders have to tell us. I'm, I'm sort of noticing this a little bit. But I wonder how can their world view be heard at such big UN conferences, because it's a different approach to the land, to the sky, to the sea. I'm hearing a lot of it on this program. What do you think we need to do to get our Australian Aboriginal worldview heard 
much in a much yeah. broader global world yeah yeah i think it's kind of um it's quite complicated um because i mean we definitely just need to make more spaces and provide more funding um because a lot of indigenous organizations are underfunded and they don't have the time um, who has the time to volunteer to do even more than they're already doing a lot of people who i just talked to a lot of people who try to do engagement in the indigenous uh, with indigenous organizations to make sure that they're doing their due diligence and seeking the perspectives that matter but it's just that the organizations they're trying to talk to are completely overwhelmed or they don't have the time or they don't have the resources so i think putting more resources into indigenous organizations so that and then creating the spaces for them to speak so that they can then attend so I think that those would be some key ways, but the, the difficult thing is, I think if we don't address kind of broader sources of obviously inequity in Australia and like deal with our colonial past, I think it's always going to be difficult and complicated and painful to, I, I don't know, to, to, to try to, to try to listen, you know, because in the, in the kind of structures we have now, I don't know, we haven't really acknowledged the importance of our First Nations voices and people yet, you know. You sound very fired up about that. Is, is that something that you're going to be saying at the meetings you go to? What, what, what are you going to be saying? Yeah, I think definitely, yeah, um, the people that I talk to, I would like to know how Indigenous voices, I mean, marginalised voices in general, but particularly Indigenous voices are being heard and being involved in not a tokenistic way, not a way that's just oh, look, we're, you know, we're, they were invited to the meeting, you know, but what power do they have? Because I think in a lot of these spaces, you know, people are willing to bring you into the room, but they're not willing to actually cede any power to you. So I'd like to know how they would respond to that if, if there is any action on that. Um, because, yeah, I think First Nations people are at the centre of, of this, you know. I mean, most Indigenous people have across the world have been, like talking about climate change for a long, long time. So I think, yeah, it's important that we listen. Okay, well, thank you, Amelia. We've been talking to Amelia Goonridge from the Global Voices organisation, and I'm hoping that she'll talk to us again after she's attended this massive conference. Thank you so much, Vivian. Thank you. All around the world, sea levels are rising, and so are First Nations people. When our homelands are on fire and our rivers run dry, when sacred sites are desecrated and communities are left behind, we don't just see the climate crisis, we, we feel, feel it. We literally feel the pain in our own bodies when this is happening. It is our right and our responsibility to look after country. We follow in the footsteps of our ancestors, fighting for country, for culture and our future. We are seeing and our movement is growing. Mining giants are paying politicians to stand in our way, but what we have that they don't is each other. Together, we can change the course of history. It's time for much more than climate action. It's time for climate justice. It's time for everyone, everywhere, to stand up. We are the first scientists the oldest continuing culture. We've defended Mother Earth for thousands of generations. We've survived every shitstorm that's been thrown at us. We are First Nations. We are trailblazing the path out of this crisis. We know what to do. It's time for you to follow our lead and together we can build a future worth fighting for. At SeedMob, we stand shoulder to shoulder with communities on the front lines of fossil fuel extraction and climate impacts. We're mobilising across the country to hold governments and big corporations accountable. We are young, black, deadly warriors, and together we're unstoppable. Will you join us? You've been listening to the Climate Action Show. On the road to Glasgow, we heard speakers from the Women and Earth Climate Network. They represent many Indigenous women, often on the front lines of the deforestation, oil pipelines, gas lands and coal extensions that are fueling climate change. Jacinta Ruru from Aotearoa joined us to talk about 
the rights of nature. Irene Hongping Shen from Trade Unions for Energy Democracy talked about public ownership of the renewable energy that's going to turbocharge our transition. Then Amy Goodman uh, talked to us about getting the media spotlight on the people who are really taking climate action. And lastly, Amelia Goonridge from Global Voices talked about getting a youth voice at COP26. There's so much on this month, and I hope you can throw your energy behind some of the actions. November the 6th will be a global day of climate action. There's also the Don't Nab Our Future campaign where you can protest about the $7 billion that the National Australia Bank is still trying to lend or preparing to lend to coal, oil and gas companies. And lastly, Extinction Rebellion is having escalating actions in Canberra while our parliament is sitting uh, this week and next. Please lend your support to them if, at all, if you can. The music tonight was the Maori Farewell, which is one of my favourites, and then Kai Guajajara from Amazonas. She was singing Esa Rua Emina, meaning this is my path. Thanks also to Mark Spencer at Climactic Collective, who found the song that we'll go out with from Mama Maharanji and the Marikura. It's three women in a caravan and they're at the Blues Festival in Byron Bay uh, 2019. I'll put the video on the show notes. Another thing you can do to help promote the idea of climate action, we always try to give a very positive approach to climate action, but just get this podcast from 3CR websites, a climate action show, and send it to some friends. Promote listeners to this because we're always trying to get more people taking climate action. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5 p.m. to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.